Hey guys, my name is Jordan, uh, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet. And typically when you preach a sermon, you've got to do a little bit of work as a pastor to get people to feel the problem. Uh, in order to, to get the significance of what Jesus has done for us, we've got to have this kind of visceral reality of the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of ourselves but I don't think I have to do a lot of that work this morning because I think we're all feeling it, right? I think a lot of us are feeling some of the, the frustration and the sadness with what's been happening in our city and we're following the news feeds and some of that discouragement. I know at least for me, I, I know it's not true for everyone, but at least for me, I started to feel some of just the weightiness, the discouragement, the sadness of the brokenness of our world this week and specifically wanted to just acknowledge that if you are, a minority, you are feeling this in a unique way. And I know a couple of my friends that I've been talking with, this doesn't feel like an external problem. This feels like the story of their life. And for you guys, I know that in some senses, this conversation um, is really important and it's really good that our culture is having it and that the church is having it, but there even can be some frustration of it feels a little bit late to you. Like this has been your experience throughout your life and you felt like you've been trying to talk about this for a long time. And so people piling on now in some senses can, can feel kind of late. And I just want to acknowledge that. And, and I'm sorry that you often know what it's like to, to feel people in power are hurting you or feel like your voice is not as significant as other people's. And, and regardless of if you're a minority or not, I think almost all of us have this experience of feeling like power is used against us instead of for us. And we, we have this, this visceral sense of something being wrong with the world. And, and here's why that's the case. Here's why that's an experience for so many of us is because human beings in their nature are fundamentally selfish, selfish beings. Okay, I'm not saying that we're selfish all the time, but I'm saying our default setting, our nature is towards selfishness. We're, we're like black holes that are consuming everything that and everyone that's in front of us for our own gain. We just kind of suck it in for our own selfishness. That's what human beings are like, every human being that's ever existed, except for one. His name was Jesus Christ. And his fundamental state, his default was selflessness, not selfishness. It was self-sacrificial love. And, and the people that encountered Jesus, their very natures of selfishness were actually transformed by his love and they became fundamentally different people. And so this is what I want to say to you is we've got to acknowledge the reality of the problem. We can't push it under the rug, but there's also a solution to the problem. There is real hope in him found uniquely in Jesus Christ. And so today what we're doing is we're actually looking at Jesus's last words on earth. So we're jumping out of Ecclesiastes and we're doing a three-week series in John 13 through 17. And the context is that it's the night before that it's the night before Jesus dies. And he knows he's about to die and he's giving himself to serve and love his disciples. Um, a lot of you guys have heard, heard my story. I've talked a lot about how I came to Christ because it's a significant moment in my life. I actually met Jesus the night that my dad passed away when I was 16. And, and I remember a couple days before he died, um, walking into his hospital room 
and he had this just cheesy grin on his face and he was acting weird. And I was trying to figure out like, dad, what's going on? And then my mom walked in the room and he pulled out this necklace from underneath his covers and gave it to my mom. And he had, uh, you know, picked out, picked out the necklace and arranged for it to be delivered to the hospital bed. And he was like so excited for my mom in that moment. And it, it seriously stunned me. And I think is one of the big reasons why I came to know Jesus, because I had been processing that moment in an entirely selfish way about what this was going to do to my life and how hard this was for me. And then I looked at my dad who literally was on his deathbed and he was thinking about how to serve and love the people in his life. And, and his selflessness kind of shocked the selfishness out of me and made me realize how fundamentally broken I was. And here's what we're going to see in John 13 today and then over into 14 is Jesus doing that exact same thing. He's taking a group of people who are consumed by their selfishness and he's shocking them out of it with his unbelievable self-sacrificial love. And he's spending the last hours on earth that he has not trying to get people to serve him or do what he wants, but actually to prepare them for the suffering that they're about to encounter. He's, he's comforting them to prepare them for his own death. And so that's why we're calling today, let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, it's a famous phrase that Jesus has in these coming chapters, and I think it, it sets us up well for this moment. So let's look at this moment of wild love from Jesus. Look at John 13 with me. I'm going to read starting in verse 3. It's the famous story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. So he puts on the dress of a servant. He's a a famous rabbi dressing like a servant. Verse five, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So picture the disciples around the table their feet are dirty because they've been traveling in sandals and they're, they're sort of laying kind of uh, across the ground on their elbows and their feet are out away from the table. Um, and it was common practice in this time when you walked into a home with dirty feet that the lowest ranking servant would be the one that would have to do this job because it was considered a, a really low kind of degrading job. And the reason why the disciples' feet are still dirty is because there apparently wasn't a servant in the home and none of the disciples would do it for the other. Because they were peers, they weren't willing to kind of degrade themselves in that sense. And then Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, famous rabbi stands up and begins to wash their feet. Okay, it it is hard to grasp the ridiculousness of that scenario. Um, I I think we get a little piece of it. If you imagine somebody that you respect washing your feet, it's like kind of embarrassing. And like the disciples probably felt loved by it, but they probably more than anything were like, Jesus, this is just socially awkward. Can you stop? I just, I feel uncomfortable with this whole thing. Like, okay, imagine uh, if the president of the United States, all right, so Pick, pick the president that you've loved and respected the most in your lifetime, whether it's the current one or a different one, doesn't matter, but one that you've loved and respected the most. Imagine that that president tells you that he's coming over to your house, okay? And so you spend two days cleaning your house, whatever. The Secret Service knocks on their door, they, your door. They come through. They do a sweep of your home. The president of the United States walks in in his suit, and he immediately walks up to your couch, and he pulls it out. 
and you realize you forgot to clean under the couch and you know that that is a scary place down there, right? And so depending on whatever your life circumstances is, he's either finding Doritos or he's finding like Cheerios down there. There's hairballs from your pets. There's some of your hair down there. And he gets down on his hands and his knees in his suit and he's picking it up by hand and throwing it in the trash and then taking your garbage out for you. How shocking and embarrassing and and wild is that moment? Okay, that is essentially the moment that Jesus is having with his disciples here. And there's a lesson that he's teaching them. Look at it in verse 14 and 15. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So maybe they're thinking, maybe this guy isn't as prestigious as I thought he was because somebody that prestigious wouldn't do something like this. And he acknowledges, no, I am as big of a deal as you thought I am. I am the Lord of the universe, but I do this because this is what leadership in my kingdom is like. Verse 15, for I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. This is essentially what Jesus is saying, is he's saying, this is how I designed my world to run. That my world was designed in a fundamentally different way than you naturally navigate it. All of us naturally navigate the world by trying to provide for ourselves and provide for our own needs. But Jesus actually designed the world that we all would first and foremost try to provide for each other's needs, and that everyone on the planet would be loved as a result of that because everyone surrounding them would be first and foremost caring about their needs. Think about what he's saying here and what that would mean for life if we actually took him seriously. So, so notice that he doesn't just say, hey, this is something unique that I do as Jesus Christ. He's saying, this is what you should do as my followers, Okay, so Jesus just fundamentally changed leadership. Leadership is not about your name. It's about propping other people up. He just changed business. Business can't be entirely about just uh, making a profit for yourself, but it's got to be about blessing and serving your employees, uh, uh, making the community better, helping your customers. It's all about other people first and foremost before it's about yourself. Imagine what that does to marriages, that you're not married so that you can be happy. You're married to give your entire life to serving and blessing another human being who's an image bearer of Christ. Friendships. Friendships are not about the people that you most closely associate with and naturally relate to. There's a gift that you've been given by God to serve and help someone else. Your finances are not primarily for you, but they're to make the world look more like Jesus's kingdom on earth. He fundamentally changed the baseline mode of operating in our life and what the purpose of our lives are. So I want to give you a little case study of what that looks like when Jesus's love hits home and when he expects the same thing of you. And I think the case study we have is actually in the life of the disciples himself. So, so picture that room. They're sitting at their last supper together and kind of go around the room and picture the faces of the men in that room. And, and for me, as I was doing this, it got a little bit easier because I've been watching The Chosen. Guys, are you watching this? It is a TV series about the life of Jesus, which I know sounds terrible because I typically hate cheesy Christian stuff and pretty much everything done around Christianity and pop culture and, and I don't know why I said pop, just in culture is, is just cheesy and I hate it, okay? So I didn't watch this for a while and then Drew convinced me to watch it and it is stunning. 
because it's actually decently well acted and they put a, a decent amount of money into it. And so it's not distracting, but it's actually just like watching Jesus live. And, and there's one episode where he's building a fire and I genuinely was like stunned. I don't know why. I, I don't know if I had just pictured him like starting fires, like with his fingers, like and then fire going up. Like he was a real human guys. Like he had to build fires. I I, I know I should have known that, but I didn't picture it like that. And I'm starting to see the, the humanity of the disciples as well. And I'm, I'm understanding more of, okay, I'm talking about the chosen too much. Just watch the chosen. It's so good. Okay. So picture the disciples. Okay. So you've got, you've got Peter who was a Jewish fisherman and then you've got Matthew who was a tax collector. And they were from the same area and they were operating in the same small town. And so they likely were really familiar with each other. And here's the deal is tax collectors were representatives of Rome. And so this conversation that we're having in culture right now about power dynamics and, and race and how those things come together, it, it's an important conversation. We should be having it. It's not a new conversation. In fact, Jesus came into a culture where those same conversations were happening. So you had the Jews who thought they were religiously and racially superior to the Samaritans. And then the Samaritans were angry at the Jews for essentially segregating against them. Then you had the Romans that were just oppressing everybody and they ruled everybody and they kind of ruled with an iron fist over everyone. And so everybody hated the Romans. And so what you've got in Peter and Matthew is the oppressed and the oppressor. Matthew worked on behalf of the Romans who were oppressing the Jews. And on top of that, tax collectors would extort the Jews out of their own money. So it's very likely that Matthew had personally extorted Peter out of his hard-earned money and also his family. And so you've got these two guys sitting around a table together. And instead of being at each other's throats, they're about the same thing. How does that happen? How do you achieve that type of of reconciliation, the answer is the love of Jesus Christ. The humility of Jesus to lower himself to become a servant shocked Matthew and Peter out of their arrogance and their, their, their conflict with each other. And they started to learn the life imperfectly, but they started to learn the life of humbling themselves to bless and serve the other one. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So Jesus sets the example in self-sacrificial love, and then he has the expectation that his followers will do the same thing. And here's what it did, is it fundamentally changed those people who encountered the love of Jesus, and they created these little countercultural communities. And the early church formed these little communities that were known for their generosity, not only towards each other, but towards the world. He changed these men and then they went out into the world and they formed new communities that helped to transform the world. Imagine, imagine if we actually did this. Okay, not only if we did this, imagine if the whole world was like this. So one way to figure out if something is morally good is to imagine if everyone in the world lived by that principle. Imagine if everyone live in the world lived by the principle of love given to us by Jesus. What would work relationships look like? Okay, you'd have a CEO coming into the office early to take out the trash to bless the janitor. You'd have employees 
never speaking poorly of their CEO and never complaining about the company, but only desiring to bless it and to serve it. You'd have coworkers who would see that another coworker is struggling financially and would ask to give up their raise so that the other coworker could get a double one to help them out. Imagine marriages. You'd have spouses that are eating too fast because they're so excited to do the dishes. Not even the agreement of, hey, you cook all clean, but just all cook and all clean. It, like, it, it'd be crazy. Imagine friendships, what those would be like. Imagine what churches would be like. Guys, I got a glimpse of this this week. I, I got to go out and serve with you guys yesterday, and it was so cool to watch Salt City in action. And I've heard specifically of our college students. I just wanted to commend you guys. You did a great job of immediately responding as soon as you saw our city needed it. And some of you have been serving in the city essentially every day. What if the church just was like that? What would be the conversations we would have about race within the church and about politics within the church? There'd be this radical generosity towards each other and this deep desire to give up our own preferences and our needs for the benefit of the other person. We would be quicker to listen and slower to speak. Now, now that world might feel unrealistic. And in some senses it is because we still live in a fallen, broken world and that selfishness is still kind of the the basic nature of the human heart, but just because we can't achieve that kind of perfect understanding of Jesus' kingdom, that perfect example of love like he recommends in John 13, doesn't mean that we give up trying because perfection was never the goal, right? You don't go out and play basketball, chuck up your first shot, miss it, take your ball, kick it, and go home and never play basketball again. Because the point wasn't that you would never miss a shot, but you can still get a lot better. So this is what I'm saying. Will we be perfect at creating that kingdom on earth? Is it possible to create the perfection of Jesus' kingdom on earth? No, but when he told us to pray that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, I think it's because he actually thought that that could start to happen. And so even though we can't be perfect in that, we still want to strive to make this world different as a result of the way that we navigate the world in love. And we think that Jesus, by his spirit, can actually transform us into those types of people. And so a radical life of self-giving service that looks a lot like Jesus is not the exception. It's not something that we just do periodically, but it's actually the job description of a Christian on how we should live life at a base level, which is really hard and will take a lot of repentance and, and a lot of growth over time and a lot of help from one, each, from one another, but it's a really beautiful picture of what life could be. Don't you want that life don't you want to live in a world like that? Don't you want to be a part of creating a world like that? But, but here's the thing that we've got to realize is our, our application to this can't be just like, oh, that's the type of person we should be. And so let's just resolve to go be better because we can't actually make ourselves into that type of person. And that's where we got to see sort of the second layer of what's happening in John 13. Okay, Jesus absolutely is giving us an example that he wants to follow but he's also doing more than that. He's using the foot washing as an illustration of something greater that he's about to do. Look at, back at verse six, John 13, verse six through eight. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. All right, so it seems like Jesus 
is getting a little intense about foot washing, right? Like if you're just looking at this, of, if he's just literally talking about foot washing, Jesus just said, Peter, you can't be my disciple and you have no place with me unless you let me wash your feet right now. That seems a little bit extreme. And so here's what we know from looking into what Jesus is saying, that he's not just talking about foot washing, but he's talking about something that he's about to do for them on the cross. He's pointing forward to his coming self-sacrificial death for his disciples. And he's saying, this is the only way that you can become a person of love. It's the only way that you can have a relationship with me is if you allow me to serve you by this death that I'm about to endure. And if we thought foot washing was crazy in its sacrificial service, uh, that's nothing in comparison to what Jesus is about to do on the cross. And guys, like I mentioned, we're, we're having these, these conversations about power dynamics in our society. And even if we don't fully understand that conversation, I think all of us have had moments where power has been used to crush us instead of to pick us up. Right, so, so either by a parent who was over-condemning or even abusive or by a spouse, or a boyfriend, or an employer, I think almost all of us, if not all of us, have experienced what it's like for someone to use their power to crush us instead of to support us and help us. And so all of us understand at some level this, this bucking against authority and this bucking against power because we don't trust it and we're afraid of it. But here's what I want you to see in Jesus' relationship with his disciples is there's an ultimate power dynamic going on here. Here's what I mean, is that Jesus is God himself interacting with human beings. So clearly there's a discrepancy in power here. If Jesus gets in, his argu- in an argument with his disciples, he can read their minds. Clearly he's gonna win that discussion. But Jesus over and over again uses his power to serve, bless, and love his disciples, not to abuse them and harm them. And the cross of Jesus Christ is an ultimate example of Jesus laying down his power for the benefit of other people. And it's actually an example of him walking towards injustice. He was completely innocent and never deserved to be crucified as a criminal, but Jesus willingly walks towards it because he never wants us to experience the divine justice that was coming our way because of sin. And so he endures it on our behalf. And guys, here's what we saw in the last couple of weeks is the, the rage and the, the anger and like the sadness, and I still don't even totally know how to describe it when you see a man being wrongfully killed. Imagine what we should feel as we watch a God being wrongfully killed. And not only that, but when we realize that we were contributing to that death with our sin, it's stunning. But Jesus in that moment on the cross decides not to hold that sinfulness against us, but actually uses that moment to serve us and to bring us into relationship with God. See, Jesus isn't a black hole of selfishness. He's a supernova. 
that as he dies, there's an explosion of his love and his grace and his generosity that goes out into the world and we're still getting hit by that debris and we're being transformed by that love and generosity that he sent out into the world. And guys, I wanna speak specifically to those of you that have felt silenced, that you felt oppressed, that you felt misunderstood or stereotyped, that you felt disrespected. Jesus understands what that's like. He hears you, he sees you, he knows your name, and he can empathize in your pain in ways that some other people can't. I was reading Psalm 6 this week. I wanna read a section of that to you, Psalm 6, 6 through 9. I'm weary with my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. This is what I want you to know is that Jesus hears your cry when you feel like no one else does. And he understands your pain deeply and he knows what it's like to suffer through injustice. If you're hurting and you feel sinned against, Jesus listens to your cry. But it's not only that, it's when you're the one doing the hurting, as all of us are. All of us are a combination of people who have been hurt by other people, been sinned against and have sinned. And that sin has deeply affected God himself. And so when you're the one that does the hurting, when you're the one that does the sinning, that, that ultimately leads to the injustice of the cross, God listens to Jesus's cry in that moment, Father, forgive them for they not, know not what they do. And he chooses in that act to not hold it against you. So in one act of suffering that Jesus willingly walks towards, he's able to empathize with you in your pain and he's able to remove from you the consequences of the pain that you caused him. But here's the reality is a lot of us don't know what to do with that grace. It's, it's staggering. It's this the, the, the way that the disciples felt in that moment when Jesus washed their, their feet, kind of that embarrassing reality of that moment, when we encounter the cross of Jesus Christ, we feel that same type of weight and embarrassment at is the problem really this bad and what do I do with that type of grace? And there's some of us that will think that we don't deserve it that we can't deserve love like that from a God like that. And there's others of us that will think that we don't really need it, even without realizing it. We'll think that, that yes, we're imperfect, but we don't really need something that graphic, that, that horrific, that intense. We can start to solve this problem on our own through choosing to be people of, of love, choosing to live differently. But when we're in that moment, we're doing the same thing that Peter did. Look back at verse eight. Peter said to them, said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And you'll have this instinct to look at Jesus when he offers you this unbelievable sacrifice, this unbelievable selfless act of love on the cross. And your temptation will be to say, Jesus, no, I, can't, I can't take that. You can't wash my feet. But here's what you gotta realize is you can't ever become the type, you can't ever become the person of love that you wanna become without letting him love you like that. He first has to love you and heal you like that in order to transform you. 
Now, maybe some of you noticed that I, I said that we're talking about let not your hearts be troubled. And that's like the title of the sermon today. And that's not actually in John 13. Okay, so what's the deal there? Was that a mistake? No, I actually wanted to connect what we learn in John 13 about the love of Jesus and his expectation of love from us to John 14, where he says, let not your hearts be troubled. So let's look at John 14, verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, will you just let that like sit on you? I've, I've felt like that was a word directly from God for me this week. It's exactly what I needed to hear. Troubled means um, to not have this emotional uproar, to, to not be terrified, to not be settled. And Jesus is giving you permission to fight back in your heart against that, that part in you that wants to be terrified and unsettled and afraid. And that might seem really difficult in this moment because this is a really troubling moment. And it has been for a long time now in our world, but I want you to remember the context that Jesus spoke this to his disciples. Jesus himself was about to die and they didn't know exactly what was gonna happen, but they knew something was up and they were hearing him say that he was about to leave them. And these are guys that had given up everything in their life, their occupations, their families to follow Jesus around every day for three years. So that is a terrifying proposition to these guys. This is a incredibly troubling circumstance that they're about to walk into. And so Jesus, full well knowing that they're walking into troubling circumstances, is saying, let not your heart be troubled. How and why? Well, it's the next sentence. Believe in God. Believe also in me. See, this week, I did not obey this command from Jesus. I struggled. I let my heart be troubled. And I thought in the moment it was because of the circumstances that we're living in. But here's what I've learned is it wasn't a failure of circumstances. It was a failure of belief. If I actually believed that God was who he said he was, I would be able to navigate these really difficult circumstances without letting my faith and my heart be shaken. Because here's who God is. He's a God of service. And it means that in the middle of the craziest circumstances of your life, he is there with you, serving you and helping you. It would be a mistake to think that what Jesus did in John 13 was just kind of a nice gesture at the end of his life for his disciples. No, the entire book of John is asking this question, who is Jesus? And the answer that John gives over and over again in the, in the famous I am statements where Jesus over and over again acclaims claims deity, the answer that John gives over and over again is that he is God. He's the revelation of the character of God on earth. So when you see Jesus, you see what's true about God. And so this is what God is saying about himself, not just in that moment, but in all the times and all the circumstances and all the realities is that he is a God who loves to serve his people. That is the natural overflow of his character. And so when you're troubled, when you're afraid, when you're walking through a crazy world like this, God is with you serving you. We, we, we forget this all the time. The fundamental reality of Christianity is not our service of God, but his service of us. And when you learn that he serves you, it produces service and love naturally out of you. And not only is he serving you now, but he will be serving you for all of eternity. That's verse two in John 14. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What type of place is Jesus preparing for us? Exactly the type of place that we are talking about when we imagine what it would be like if we all lived in accordance with Jesus' self-sacrificial love. He's preparing a place for us of perfect love. And not only that, a place where for all of eternity, God himself will serve and love us because that's what God is like. It's what he's always been like. It's what he always will be like into the future. Guys, God has never had a selfish thought. Like, you know why he created the world? Is because he wanted an overflow place for his love. This world is an overflow tank to hold the excesses of God's self-giving love and joy. And so for the rest of eternity, he's preparing a place for you for him to dump the excesses of his love, service, and joy on you and for you then to respond to him in that love and joy. And not only is that place coming in the future, but he's given you the opportunity by the power of his Holy Spirit to start to give this world a taste of what that world is like through the way that we live by transforming us into people of love founded on his love for us. Guys, here's, here's the reality, and I want to sp- speak specifically to some of you that don't know Jesus or doubting. Is we see the problem in, the, in this world, and people are calling out that problem, and they're horrified by some of the things that can happen in this world, and Christianity has the best reason for that problem. <laughs> Our culture is crying out injustice, and they're right, and they're crying out George Floyd had dignity, and they're right, but we have the reason why that's true. It's that George Floyd and every other person on this planet is an image bearer of God worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. That's why there's the problem. And we all were meant to to live in a place of love and sacrifice towards each other. We have the reason for the problem and we have the only solution. The God who came to serve us and then to create us, recreate us into people of service and love towards each other. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for that truth. Thanks that foundationally you you served us, you loved us in ways that we didn't love you. You loved us before we loved you, but thanks for the hope that you can start to change us into people of love. God, make us into people who live the way that you lived, who loved the way that you loved. And this week, Help our hearts not to be troubled because we trust you. And out of that trust would love overflow onto each other and onto our city. Jesus, you are amazing. Thanks for loving us so well. Amen.